0: You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Heather. Uh, We're going to be reading Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. If you've got one of these Bibles, that's page 568. We're going to use the ESV version if you're on your device. By craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever.
1: Thank you, Heather. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Tanner House. I am the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us. There's a Connect card under your chair. You can take a minute, fill that out, let us know how we can serve you, let us know how we can get you plugged into the life of the body, or you can scan one of our QR codes that are in the back there. Um, If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Uh, Gavin will bring you one. If you're on your phone, we use the ESV. So I have four kids. If you don't know, two of my kids. For years on end, I mean years, ask for a puppy. Uh, We resisted for several years, like years and years and years. I was just a hard pass on this dog. Uh, There would be some stray dog that would wander down our street, and our kids would be out front playing in the yard, and they would somehow manage without me or my wife knowing to get this dog into our backyard. They'd give it a name. They would try to feed it. Shep would inevitably try to ride on it. Um, so then, when I found out about said dog uh, that couldn't be hid for very long, uh, I'd either put it on the next door app or just open the gate and tell the dog to go in peace. Um, I, you know, I'm just trying to do my part, you know, like pet blessing. Um, just principally, me, I'm not a pet person. But then, my friend and your friend. Trenton Marks moved to Corpus Christi for a few days at the end of last year. And in his absence, his dog, who he left with his wife and son, had a litter of puppies. And so I went over there to look at the puppies, which was my big mistake, okay? Um, I decided... Even though there's some discussion about how there's a disagreement in our house about how this whole thing went down. But anyways, stay with me for this story. Um, We made the decision. I'll say we. We made the decision that we would get them a puppy. Because they promised that they could handle it. They promised that they would do all the stuff. Because hear me, I am not going to do the dog stuff. Just not going to do it. So we got this dog. A cute little puppy with this crooked little tail. We named him Captain Hook. Hook for short. And guess what happened when this puppy came to our house around Christmas? The newness wore off in about seven seconds. And my kids realized very quickly, like, oh no. We actually have to do stuff with this dog. Because dad was serious. Dad is not taking care of this dog. Uh, We have to feed this dog. I do buy the food, by the way, but but they have to distribute it in the bowl. Um, They have to feed him. They have to keep him alive. And we have to make sure that dad has a clean yard to walk in. So now we have this dog. It's great. I'm fine with it, whatever. Um, But imagine with me for a second that my kids functioned in this way. Pretend with me for a second that my kids would come up to you and tell you that they are self-proclaimed pet dog owner experts, okay? They're not, but just pretend with me that they are. They can tell you all of this stuff that they're supposed to do, all this stuff about how you are to properly care for a dog, and then you ask them, like, yeah, well, show me, teach me how, how to care for a dog, and you find out that they don't really do any of the stuff that they're supposed to do. They might respond, well, we think about our dog sometimes. We feed our dog when we're in town. We take our dog for a walk on Christmas and Easter. We do all the things that were required of me as a dog owner, but we just do it in our hearts. a lot of us, a lot of people who claim to be Christians approach the church and approach Jesus, we know all the right things to say. We may even do some of the things that Jesus is calling you to do from time to time when it's convenient for you. But when you take the whole Bible in view, and when you view the Bible as your authority, which it should be if you claim to be a Christian, then there is just so much more to the faith than checking a box and regurgitating some facts about Jesus. If that is all that your Christianity is, then that is woefully insufficient. Because if you claim to be saved by Jesus, then that means you are giving your whole life to Jesus. You're not just giving lip service to the things of Jesus, and you're not casual here and there, and you don't have a casual attitude, a flippant attitude towards, towards the church. This text this morning is going to call us to more than a casual attitude and more than a casual view of Christ in the church. So I'd ask you... I'd ask all of us to consider our relationship to Christ and the church this morning and see if you function like this text is calling you to function. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our great need for you, Lord. By your great mercy, I just ask that you would soften our hearts, Lord, to respond to you openly and honestly. Lord, that you would show us areas of our need for growth and our need for dependence. Lord, I just pray that you would move this morning. Teach us what it means to be devoted to you. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself. That the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed, and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so before we jump in, let's, let's review... Uh, Our text today in Ephesians chapter 4 marks the beginning of a shift in the book of Ephesians. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying the word therefore. So remember, I'm going to adopt this statement as my own. It's from my old pastor, but now it's mine. Uh, He's retired. Anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, you should stop and see what it's there for. But a cha So, um, Paul starts by saying, therefore. So in a sentence or two, let me summarize the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul has reminded us of our identity as Christians, chosen and beloved, adopted before the foundation of the world. We are called into a family by the grace of God demonstrated to us and given to us by his death and resurrection for us on the cross and by his resurrection. God is calling all of creation under subjection, bringing all things together in heaven and on earth under his kingly reign. And he then uses the church, the manifold wisdom of God, to fulfill this mission. So now the remaining uh, three chapters are how are we as Christians going to function with that missional purpose in view. So let's pick it up in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul writes this letter from a Roman prison, but he doesn't say he is is a prisoner of Caesar or a prisoner of the Jews who hate him, but he is a prisoner of the Lord or for the Lord. He says, I am urging you to walk in a manner that is in accordance with the calling on your life. Meaning this, there is no distinction between your Sunday morning and your work life. There is no distinction between your Sunday morning and your weekend nights. All of it belongs to the Lord. Christian, you are to see your life in that way. All of this belongs to the your whole life is meant to be an expression of the gospel that is paid for your sins and purchased your pardon before God himself. Now Paul then says, live like you actually believe this. Live like you believe that any of this matters to you. Consider just for a second with me the depths of your sin. Every single one of us are so ugly and broken and so unworthy. And yet Paul writes to us as those who have been saved by grace through faith. We who are unworthy have been made worthy by Jesus' death on the cross and by his resurrection that has forgiven us for our sins. You have been bought at such a high cost. And so now live like you are worthy of that calling you have received. This is an imperative. This is a command. You, Paul says, you, Christian, live like you are actually a Christian. This is not just a calling to pastors in the church. This is a calling on all of us if you are a believer in Jesus. The word Christian literally translates to little Christ." I thought of like bobblehead day at the stadium. Uh, I don't know why. And that's not in my notes. That was free. But the word Christian literally translates to little Christ. So the question is, does your life look like you are a replica of Jesus? This calling unites us all. Whether you are a pastor of a church, a future pastor of a church, a teacher, an oil-filled worker, a medical professional, or a stay-at-home parent, you are called to walk in the way that Jesus walks. And how did Jesus walk? Well, I'm glad you asked. What does it look like to walk worthy? Look, let's look at Jesus. The text tells us in verse 2, basically, to, I'm going to add two words, Jesus walked with all humility and gentleness, with patience. And then Paul says, bearing with one another in love. Walk in the manner worthy of the calling that you have received, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. So Paul gives us some terms. Humility. I like the C.S. Lewis definition from the book Mere Christianity. Um, if you haven't read it, you should, it's great. Uh, he says, it's, humility is not thinking, of, thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. This is not a marker of our Western world. In our Western world, in our Western mindset, self rules. We are living in a world that champions individuality in every sphere. Culturally, we want personal freedom and personal autonomy, and we will pursue it at the expense of almost everything else. Treat yourself. (laughs) We spend money recklessly on things we don't need. We pursue sex with reckless abandonment outside the will of God. For a lot of us, we only consider others with selfish motives in view. Like, how's this going to make me feel about myself? Look at how great I am. I helped out person X today. The opposite of humility is pride. Thinking higher of yourself. Thinking you are the center of your own universe. And yet, Paul says, walk in humility. Jesus is the extreme. supreme example of humility. Jesus, who according to Philippians 2, 5-11, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He stepped out of perfection, stepped out of heaven, emptied himself, was born of a virgin, born in the likeness of man, and became a servant He served believers by dying in their place, dying the death that was ours to die, but now through the humility of Jesus, through his death, and completed by his resurrection and his ascension, we then will be exalted with him. Jesus is our humble servant. The text also tells us he walked in gentleness. This means he was self controlled. Gentleness is demonstrated by the way we care for one another, it's not being snippy or short or quick tempered. And Jesus is gentle with us, enduring with us, not as a bully, not as a person who is annoyed with us, but in love. And he lovingly restores his children who wander away in sin and return to him by faith through repentance. Jesus is gentle. And Jesus is also patient. A lack of patience demonstrates a lack of love and a lack of humility. Patience is cultivated by relying on the Holy Spirit. Through this dependence on God, we are able to endure difficult people and difficult circumstances. We're called to walk in patience with one another because Christ has been and will continue to be patient with us. We grow in Christ's likeness when we grow in humility. We grow in Christ's likeness when we grow in gentleness. And we grow in Christ's likeness when we grow in patience. When we are humble, when we're gentle, when we're patient, we are able to bear with one another in a loving way. Bearing with one another means we accept one another. It does not mean that we accept the sins of one another, but we are accepting of one another and continue to push one another towards Christ. It means that there is accountability. And sometimes accountability means a hard conversation. But you can do that in a humble way, and in a gentle way, and in a patient way. And you do that in love, because of the love of Jesus to you. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So think about it in terms of a marriage. The only way a marriage works is that the two people involved are willing to bear with one another, lovingly enduring with one another. In times when we become stagnant in our marriage, in times that one party or both parties become hard to deal with, or in times where one or both parties just become lazy, like we lovingly endure with one another. And as Christians, it's the same way. None of us are where we need to be. None of us. But through the Holy Spirit's work in us to grow us and to sanctify us, we will be one day. But we walk in gentleness and humility and patience towards one another, and we do so in love. And here's what else. None of this happens in our own strength, and none of this happens in our own power. To live in the way that Jesus lived... As believers, it is only possible through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We cannot live like Jesus without God in us. And we cannot live like Jesus without being dependent upon Jesus. A.W. Tozer says it this way, We go astray when we attempt to do spiritual work without spiritual power. Depend on Jesus. And then that leads to one of the purposes of the church. Verse 3 says that we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As Christians, Paul says, we ought to be eager to maintain unity. Tony Marita says this, notice we don't create unity, but we're called to keep it. God unites us and we are to seek to maintain unity through the help of the Holy Spirit. This occurs when we die to ourselves, letting go of our wants, our desires, and sins, and allow Jesus to reign supremely in our life. In order to be humble, we can't be self-centered. In order to be gentle, we can't be harsh towards one another. We must not impose our own wants, desires, expectations on the church, and we must be patient with one another. We must be eager to love one another in the way that Christ has loved us. Paul then follows up this command to maintain unity by giving us one of the first creeds of the faith. A creed is a statement of beliefs. The word in Latin is credo, meaning like, I believe. So uh, Paul follows this up. Look at verse 4. He says, There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says we're one body. We are members of Christ's church, united by the common confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, united with our distinct backgrounds and giftings. Paul says, we are of one spirit. As believers, we have one common origin through the Holy Spirit's work at salvation to call us into faith by convicting us of sins and by setting his seal upon us. We are united together with him in Christ who seals us in Christ. Paul says, we're of one hope. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. We are hopeless. Hopeless, needy sinners Broken because our sin debt is steep, unable to self save, unable to rescue ourselves. We needed Christ's sacrifice to us and we got it. And now, because of what Christ did for us on the cross and completed through his resurrection and his ascension, we now have hope in Christ that Christ is in us and has saved us and will finish the good work that he started in us. One Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord means he is the ruler, the master, the savior of your life. These are just not empty words. These are not empty words. For the Christians in Paul's day, it could get you killed. Remember, Paul was committed to Jesus, and he's now riding from a Roman prison. Jesus is Lord. Are you willing to say that Jesus is your Lord no matter what it costs you? Paul says we're of one faith. There is one essential truth about the nature and character of Jesus, and that is Jesus is God and he is the only way to salvation. We're of one baptism. We share in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it is portrayed symbolically through believer's baptism. One God. And Father of all. We have been adopted by God into the family of God, who is our Father, and who is the Father of all believers, who are our brothers and sisters, and He is over all, and through all, and in all, by His power and authority. We are united through these things. And what a powerful display it is for the watching world when the church is eager to maintain this unity. However much we may differ from one another, Within the church, we are all children of God. And when you're a child of God, Christ dwells inside of you through his Holy Spirit. Being a part of one family together should lead us to love and honor one another simply on that basis alone. Unity does not mean that we're all the same, but rather through our uniqueness, we're united by a common confession And a common mission of taking taking the gospel to the nations and giving God the glory in that way because it is rightly due him. And what's more, church, we can't maintain this unity on our own. We can't achieve unity on our own. Much like we can't live a life devoted to Jesus without the Holy Spirit's help, we can't be united together in Christ without dependence on the Holy Spirit. On our own, we are selfish and prideful, wanting what we want when we want it, and that is now. But because of Jesus, we can live in unity with our brothers and our sisters. By Christ coming and perfectly living out the law and laying down his own pride and dying the death that was ours to die, we now get the benefit of his work in us and to us. And because of that work that has bought our salvation in him, this leads to grace for others and the willingness to live in humility and unity with others. And this also leads to grace for ourselves when we fall short of gentleness and humility and patience. And we've been given gifts to accomplish this purpose. Look at, look at verse 7. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Paul says that we have been given grace. In this particular use of the word grace, he's not talking about grace that saves, but he's talking about grace that empowers for ministry, ministry grace, if you will. And this ministry grace is to do what Christ has called us to do. According to Ephesians 2.10, where Paul says, We're Christ's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to do. We've all been given, if you're a Christian, you have been given different gifts. We've all been given different gifts. And these gifts are given to us by Christ and his authority. Our different personalities, our different hobbies, our different interests, our different experiences, our different abilities, are gifts that God has given to us so that we can build up and extend the church of Jesus. Our gifts are meant to compliment one another, and our gifts are meant to glorify God. They're not meant to lead you to envy, or rivalry, or dissatisfaction with God, or the gift that God has given you. Paul then summarizes Psalm 68 in verse 8. In this psalm, it's beautiful, you should go back and read it, but in this psalm, God has conquered his enemies. And he's leading the captives away into his resting place on Mount Zion. He then lavishes gifts upon them. Paul paints this picture of a victory parade for God in which Jesus has defeated the spiritual adversaries of sin and death. And through his ascension, he is taking his place on his throne. And from his position on his throne, Jesus then dispenses gifts and power and authority to the church. But in order to ascend, Jesus first had to descend to the earth through his incarnation, his birth, in order to rescue the captives and complete his purpose of rescue and redemption of a people to himself. And this occurs through his crucifixion and his resurrection. And because of Jesus' ascension, Jesus will now fill the whole earth with his glory through the manifold wisdom of the church, continuing the mission to make disciples of all nations. What verse 8 also shows us is not just the authority of Christ to give gifts, but the generosity of Christ in giving gifts. Like, the fact that he would give gifts at all to sinful people should just cause us to wonder and worship. Listen, whatever gifts you have, whatever gifts you have to serve the Lord, they're in place because you serve a victorious King Jesus. And this Jesus has defeated sin and death on your behalf. He has given you the gifts that you have in order for you to know him better and to serve the church in some real, unique, and tangible ways. So don't despise your giftings. Don't look at someone else's gift around you and think you're somehow inferior to them. The gifts of God to us reflect Jesus. And through his gifts to you, his nature and character are being reflected in you and through you when you're operating in your giftings. There's a variety of gifts to the church and one Lord. And they reflect, these gifts reflect a generous God. None of us can contain all of his gifts, and that's a gift to us because none of us can do all the kingdom work alone. Christ does not give us these gifts to use on ourselves or to do nothing with them, but to build up the body of Christ. Let's look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul then moves from this into some offices in the church, but if you're a pastor, Don't check out here. There's something for you. The text says God gave apostles and prophets to teach the word until the scriptures were completed. God gave evangelists to evangelize, which means to share the gospel. We're all called to this, but some of us are just uniquely gifted at this. And then he says there's shepherds and teachers or shepherd teachers. These are the same words. It means pastor, bishop, elder, or overseer. So God has blessed his people throughout history with people who teach and proclaim the word of God to the church. The purpose of these offices are to strengthen the church and then to equip the church to do ministry. So what that means here, if you're a covenant member of Redeemer Odessa, you all have a ministry here. Because you all have a spiritual gift as a believer. It's my job, the leadership's job, by the help of the Holy Spirit, to give you opportunities and training and teaching to function in this ministry that God has called you to do. God has worked for us, and now he is working in us, so now we are to work in order to imitate God. We're we're working in order to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. So the question here is, what are you doing with the gift that God has given you? The church is enriched, strengthened, thriving when God is worshiped and its members are serving in their giftings. The goal for me is not to create consumers here, but to have a church full of fully devoted followers of Jesus, committed to Jesus and his glory and honor and praise by obedience to him and his word. So what we see in in these offices is there's one that does the ministry and one that grows in maturity through the ministry of the church in order to then go and do the ministry so that another is growing in maturity. Listen, you don't have to have this all figured out to serve. You don't have to be fully mature in faith to serve. Spiritual growth is more than just knowing a bunch of stuff about the Bible. Spiritual growth is recognizing that your life isn't Europe. And by faith and repentance, we grow to be more like Christ. The goal for you should not be for Redeemer Odessa to provide you a bunch of menu options to choose from, like some fast food restaurant of spirituality. We call it Mech Church. Just kidding. Only one. Okay, cool. I thought I thought that was gonna kill Mech Church. Oh man. Okay. Uh, I saved my receipt. I'm taking that joke back to the joke store as soon as this is over. So there's two bad ones. Right back to back. All right, no more jokes. I'm moving on. All right. I got to go back now. Okay. So the goal isn't for this to, like, feed your perceived needs and your, your sinful wants even. But the goal for you is to get some clarity on your gifts and use them to build up the church. So if you're looking for a place that has all the bells and whistles and has every program for you under the face of the sun, we're probably not your place. This is better than the fun dome, but we're, we're getting there. But if you are wanting deep discipleship, and you're wanting true biblical community, and you're wanting to grow in fellowship with God and his bride, then hop in, because that's what we're after That's the goal of Christianity. It's not that we get to heaven. I mean, that's a good reward, right? But the goal of Christianity is that we're like Jesus. Let's look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. We grow in Christ by growing in holiness. Essentially, Paul is telling you, Hey, dude, Grow up. Grow up. Don't be led astray by false teachings. Don't play with your sin anymore. You're more able to know what false teachings are if you're committed to knowing the Bible. Growing in Christ looks like spending time with Jesus. You spend time with Jesus through the scriptures and through prayer. Growing in Christ means learning about who Jesus is and his will for your life found in the scriptures. So these last three verses highlight our need for dependence on the Lord. While we're all uniquely gifted, we all need to depend on the Savior Jesus for our strength in this life. We're told that we're to use our gifts to speak the truth in love. Listen, we all must hold God's truth in high regard And we must also be willing to fight against sin in our lives and fight for holiness in this church. But it must be presented in love, not combative. Remember, humility, gentleness, patience. And we're told we are to grow into Jesus who is the head, the body of Christ. This is essentially a warning. Busy people in this room and on the podcast, take note here. This is a warning. We can be so consumed with the cares of the world. We can be so consumed with the busyness of life that we fail to consider Jesus even for a second. We then become so used to depending on ourselves and we try to exercise God's gifts without God. We're the limbs and Christ is the head. And yet, because you're a limb, you are important to the church. And what's more, since all of us are limbs, we all need each other. Every one of you is to use your gifts to serve one another. We grow in him when we are dependent on him. And we grow in him when we are dependent on one another as our family, pushing us towards holiness. We have been united to Christ and united to one another for Christ's good glory. So here's a couple things, and I'm going to be done. We've been called into a family of God by God who gives us gifts for ministry in order to serve the body. God has called you by his authority and given you gifts by his generosity. So what are you doing with your gifts? God has given each of you, Christians, a ministry to steward. Maybe it's in your house. Maybe it's discipling your kids. Maybe you need to take some more ownership of the church. But if you aren't functioning in your gifts, you are disregarding the authority and generosity of God to you. Listen, it's a privilege to serve. It's a privilege to serve God because God has served us. But some of you don't view it like that. You were called into this family in order to continue the mission of building up the church. Failure to steward your giftedness, failure to join God in his mission is a sinful neglect of Christ's calling on your life. And if this is you, I'd just ask you why. Is it because you don't want to sacrifice something? Is it because you're not receiving the accolades you want from the watching world? Perhaps you're this way because you want what others have. But listen, because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, you're approved by God. You're approved by God. You're not less than in the kingdom of God. If the Lord is calling you to some behind-the-scenes ministry, do it and do it well and do it faithfully. God sees you. God has approved you. The Lord has saved you intentionally. And for a purpose. So Christ is inviting you to discover your gift and then to serve him. Christ has gifted you uniquely. And it's important. And it's useful in this body. So the question I'll leave you with this. uh, Plural questions. I'll leave you are with this. Am I doing what God has made me to do? Am I doing what God has made me to do? Am I neglecting my gifts? Or am I delighting in who God has made me to be and his gifts to me? Am I just delighting in God? Listen, there's so much joy and contentment in Jesus and in being satisfied in Christ. By delighting in who he is and who you are with him, there's blessedness there. Jesus has given us himself for the salvation of the church, and he has given us this local expression of the church, and he has given this church you in order to serve. And that will result in a lot of satisfaction in the good and pleasing will of God in your life. One other thought. You'll never utilize your gifts fully or well if you aren't meaningfully connected to the body. The church doesn't exist for you. The church doesn't exist for you. It exists for God's glory. And yet so many of you just pop in a few times a year and feel okay about that. And look, I don't want to get on a rant here because that's real dangerous. But here's a potential issue that I see with like over programmed, heavily staffed churches. And I'm not saying these places are wrong or that these methods are sinful. I'm not saying that. But they can be problematic in our culture because we gear ministries and programs around entertaining customers and not equipping believers. And so these things can then be geared towards building up a church numerically. And listen. I want you to love it here. And I want this church to grow numerically. I really do. But I don't want those things at the expense of following the Bible. The calling on Christians in the New Testament is to serve. Come and die is the invitation from Jesus. But when your pursuit of a local church to claim as your own is rooted in what programs do they have for me and for my kids and not, hey, how can I further the mission of God in my own life, that's a problem. Christ is glorified by our obedience to him, not by how many people are here and certainly not by a bunch of people who claim to be Christians and attend here and there on Sundays and their lives look nothing like what Christ is calling you to. It's possible. You are what the scriptures would call lukewarm and that's a problem. Jesus said he'd rather vomit than have lukewarm people. So don't mock God. Don't mock God and his bride. Be committed fully to Jesus or don't be. But don't say you are when you're not. This is Christ's church. It's not ours. Christian, we are Christ's bride and our goal is to make the bride more beautiful for the return of Christ. So walk in a manner that is consistent with what you say you believe. Show up. Be present. Spend time with the Lord. Invest in other believers. Grow in Christ's likeness. The church is meant for you to grow in Christ and grow in fellowship with God and one another. So Jesus is inviting you to walk worthy of the name of Jesus. And listen, none of us are worthy, and yet he is saved to the uttermost. If you say you're a believer and have little to no regard for Jesus, you are not walking in a manner that Christ has called you to walk in. So the invitation for you then is to repent. Repent of your pride, repent of your unbelief, and receive his forgiveness, and walk with Jesus in a manner that is worthy of this calling. Let's pray.